This is Rachel Fields and Sam Swartz with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin has announced that they will not be scheduling any abortions after this Sunday, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. The move comes in anticipation of federal protections under Roe being overturned by the United States Supreme Court. The court is expected to announce their decision later this month, but a draft opinion leaked last month shows the court is expected to overrule the historic ruling. Planned Parenthood says that they expect a decision on June 27th and are not scheduling any abortions past the 25th to avoid any disruptions. In the meantime, the organization is now informing patients of other options, including nearby states that will offer abortion services if Roe falls. Protesters against anti-Asian hate marched last Friday after an assault against a Chinese doctoral student occurred in the downtown area near campus last week. Four suspects were arrested on Saturday in connection with the attack, reports NBC15. The same group are suspected to be responsible for two other assaults downtown. The MPD says they do not believe the assaults to be racially motivated, but some students and community members are pushing back on that. Some AAPI students and community members are also voicing concern that there was no university-wide warning about the assaults. UW-Madison typically issues these warnings via the WISC alert system. In a blog post by the University Police Department's Chief of Police, UW-Madison wrote that the WISC alert system is activated only when University Police can confirm a significant emergency or dangerous situation involving an immediate, actively occurring threat on campus. A car crashed through the Willie Street Treasure Shop this morning, taking out the front end of the store. Channel 3000 reports that although there were no injuries, store owner Gene Ross was inside the building at the time of the crash, saying it sounded like a bomb. The crash was caused by a speeding driver who swerved to avoid hitting a stopped vehicle in the road. Ross says that she was frustrated with the city as she has contacted city officials multiple times to try and address excessive speeding down Willie Street. Willie Street is no stranger to car versus building crashes. In 2021, a driver hit the Change Boutique and forced an evacuation of some upstairs residents living in the building. In 2020, an excessive speeder crashed into the Willie Street fire station after hitting another car. In 2018, a driver crashing into the Ha Long Bay caused the restaurant to temporarily temporarily close. In 2016, a driver crashed into Mother Fools and caused the coffee shop to close. And in 2012, a car crashed into Batch Bakehouse and caused the bakery to close. And now, on to today's top stories. Madison residents and community members held a parade on Saturday in honor of Juneteenth. The holiday, which is being recognized as a federal holiday for the second year running, commemorates the liberation of enslaved African Americans in Galveston, Texas, in 1865. WORT reporter Reed Kamai was on hand for the celebration. On Saturday, cars, motorcycles, and community members packed to the parking lot of the Fountain of Life Covenant Church east of South Park Street in Madison to celebrate Juneteenth. This was the starting point for a parade that went through South Park Street. Groups and organizations took part as well and held banners in the parade. One of these organizations was Sigma Gamma Rho Sorority Incorporated. Kavina Van, who was a member of the Iota Psi Sigma alumni chapter of the sorority, talked about what Juneteenth represents to her. It is about resilience. It's about pride. It's about being 
the absolute best in overcoming those difficult obstacles that have been stacked against us as a community. This is the second Juneteenth since the federal government declared it a national holiday. The plans for Saturday celebration were cause for excitement for Carolyn Stanford Taylor, the deputy superintendent for engagement with the Madison Metropolitan School District and formerly the state superintendent of public instruction. I'm looking forward to seeing our families. We have missed the opportunity to come together. Our students over the last couple of years have missed the number of rites of passage. This to me is another rite of passage, and this is for our entire community. So I'm looking forward to see, seeing all of us come together to just celebrate, celebrate excellence and blackness. Nelson Render is the associate superintendent for high schools with MMSD. He hopes Juneteenth can be an opportunity to educate others. I'm looking forward to um, having fun and enjoying this, but also letting this be a teachable moment to our community and to people who want to say, you know, what is all Juneteenth, what is this all about? And let this be a teachable moment. And also, hopefully this will spread out to be a bigger event for years and years and years to come. And we recognize it as such, as a national holiday, the way it's supposed to be recognized, um, that we've done for some of the other holidays. Elected officials were in attendance as well, from Madison Alders to Governor Tony Evers. Evers addressed the attendees on the importance of the day. But the, but the thing that we really have to recognize this day is for us to acknowledge, acknowledge, acknowledge that things are not as good as they should be in the state of Wisconsin. We have, you know, disproportionate outcomes uh, for black Wisconsinites in health care, education, and housing, and, and generational wealth. We have to make this day about that. You know, obviously we're happy and we're together and we're doing good things, but at the end of the day, we have 364 days following this one, and we have to we have to focus our efforts on making sure that all Wisconsinites have the same opportunities. Candidates for various elected positions also took to the parade to pitch themselves to voters. Among them was Dr. Daryl Williams, who was running for one of Wisconsin's U.S. Senate seats. Williams, who currently serves as the Wisconsin Emergency Management Administrator, says he hopes the holiday is more widely recognized and observed in future years. Well, Juneteenth means the celebration of, of all, all people, especially African-American people. And, it's, and, and, and the fact that it's now recognized as a national holiday, that says to the world that this really happened and, that, and, the, and it really is a testimony to the resilience of our people as a whole all over the world. Past, present, and future. The parade also featured dance performances, such as one by the group Dynamic Badgerettes. Their quick maneuvers drew cheers from the crowd. The parade concluded at Penn Park, where games, activities, booths, and performances were set up. That brought the community together, which is what Dr. Williams looked most forward to. And I, and I, and I think that that's, that's what it's about. Us coming together as a people, as human beings, that's the most important thing. So I'm, I'm experiencing the best part of Juneteenth right now. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Reed Kamai. Madison was one of hundreds of communities across the U.S. to celebrate Juneteenth over the weekend, and while the holiday isn't new, it's still an uphill battle to get it recognized as one. WORT reporter Madeline Plattenberg has the report. 
All U.S. states and the District of Columbia recognize Juneteenth, the holiday that remembers the date that last enslaved people in the Confederacy learned of their freedom on June 19, 1865. Many communities like Madison observe and commemorate the day with week-long celebrations, parades, and the raising of the Juneteenth flag. And the day was formally declared a federal holiday in June 2021. With a stroke of President Biden's pen, federal workers have a paid day off stock markets and banks are closed, and there's no delivery of mail. Wisconsin first recognized Juneteenth in 2009, and all states have established a formal recognition or observance of the holiday. The last two states to formally recognize Juneteenth, that's Hawaii and North Dakota, did so for the first time last year. The first state in the country to formally recognize Juneteenth was Texas in 1980. And the holiday, on the Monday following June 19th, is quickly becoming a paid holiday in states as well. According to a report from the PEW Research Center, 14 states observed Juneteenth as a paid holiday for the first time this year, bringing the total number of states to recognize Juneteenth as a public holiday to 24. But Wisconsin is one of dozens of states where Juneteenth is not an official public holiday, and where it's not a paid holiday on the state level. Communities within Wisconsin may opt to do so. Juneteenth became a holiday for Jane County employees in 2020 as recognized by the Dane County Board of Supervisors. Employees are encouraged to make it a day on, not a day off, to volunteer, attend celebrations, shop at Black-owned businesses, to advance their knowledge of systemic racism, and celebrate African-American diversity, culture, history, and contributions every day of the year. Sheila Stubbs is a Wisconsin State Representative representing the 77th Assembly District in Madison. She spoke last week at the Juneteenth flag raising celebration outside the Madison City Council building. I was the one who asked the county executive to join me with the resolution to have all county employees off for Juneteenth. I'm going to ask everyone, including our county staff, that day off, don't make it a day on your couch. Make it a day that you're out in our community helping us celebrate. And it became a paid holiday in Madison just last year. City and county workers had the day off, and with that brings a pause in some local government services. Ruben Sinone is a deputy mayor for the city. He spoke last week at the Juneteenth flag raising celebration. This year, Juneteenth is an official city holiday codified in 2021. It is a recognition that we as a nation and city celebrate the freedom of our African-American residents and acknowledge the history that some were trying to bury or rewrite. Juneteenth is a time to gather as a community, reflect on the past, and look to the future. It is also a vital recognition that none of us are truly free until we are all free. It could be years until every state adopts Juneteenth as an official holiday. Before Juneteenth, the last public holiday to be recognized by the federal government is the birthday of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., celebrated in mid-January. That became a federal holiday in 1983 after being signed into law by President Ronald Reagan. But the holiday took about 14 years until 2000 to be recognized in all 50 states. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Madeline Plattenberg. It's now 6.18 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
The Dane County Jail Consolidation Project has been in the works for years, with a final plan being approved back in 2019 to build a new jail behind the Public Safety Building in downtown Madison. But that final plan proved to be anything but, as inflation hit the project, causing the cost for a new jail to skyrocket. Last week, WORT producer Nate Weggiehout took a tour of the Dane County Jail to get a better understanding as to why the Dane County Sheriff calls it inhumane and unconstitutional. This is a portion of Nate's full story, which can be found at wortfm.org. Last week, Dane County Executive Joe Parisi and Dane County Sheriff Calvin Barrett held a press conference calling on the county board to approve a referendum to approve additional funding to build a new Dane County jail. The call for a referendum comes after soaring inflationary costs for the project. Now, the project to build a new jail stands just over $175 million. That's $10 million more than the county approved back in March, when it itself was $16 million more than 2019 estimates from when the project was first approved. To approve the additional funding needed to even start bidding on the jail construction to contractors, a budget amendment would need to be passed by the county board. That vote would require approval from two-thirds of the board. A referendum, however, would only require a simple majority of the county board. Parisi says that this may be the only way to get a new jail built. The jail project is at a do-or-die moment. Because of the looming expiration date of previously approved funding, as well as the need for, for an additional $10 million to get the project across the finish line, time is running out and the county needs to act now. If we fail to act and this project does not move forward, it's only a matter of time until we experience a tragedy, a lawsuit, or both. The jail in the city county building was built in 1953. Sheriff Calvin Barrett has called the current conditions inhumane, unsafe, and borderline unconstitutional. And he laments that he is now the third Dane County Sheriff asking the board for a new, safer jail. So let's talk a little bit about the city county building and the facts. The city county building was built in 1953. Think about where we were as an American society with our philosophy. 1953 was before Brown versus the Board of Education that desegregated schools in 1954. Uh, the jail was built in 1953 before the Supreme Court ruling of Loving v. Virginia in 1967 that made it unconstitutional for states to make it illegal for interracial marriage. Think about where we were at that time when this facility is built and that facility matches the values of our society at that time. Last week, I went on a tour of the Dane County Jail to see for myself the current state of the jail. There are really two jails in downtown Madison, the jail above the public safety building and the true Dane County Jail, which sits above the city county building. The two jails are connected by an underground tunnel. We began in the jail above the public safety building, which was built in the 1980s, and is considered the more modern section of the jail. White concrete blocks line the walls, and hard gray concrete floors cause an echo no matter where you are within the jail. There are no medical or mental health beds in the jail. People going through a medical or mental health crisis are put in solitary confinement cells. These are five foot by seven foot concrete rectangles. I can touch both ends with my arms outstretched. A concrete outcropping in the back of the cell is used as a bed, a place to lay a thin foam mattress. A silver toilet and sink, some writing and pencil on the wall. That's it. 
Sheriff Barrett says that these have to be used for any sort of medical incident. People who are pregnant spend all of their time in these cells. There are two options inside the cells, pure silence or deafening roars. And then just so you know the sound of what you, obviously the echo will drive me nuts. And here, this is the sound that you'll hear. That's a toilet flushing. The concrete walls bounced around the sound, creating a wave of noise. Now compare that with this. That was just 10 seconds. I sat in the cell for around two minutes. That was more than enough. Sheriff Barrett then brought me to the men's holding area where jail residents go before joining the general population. It was here that I was first introduced to the free tablets the jail provides to jail residents. With these tablets, residents are able to make phone calls and send text messages, take classes, read books, and stream movies and music. In the men's holding area I was in, there were around 12 tablets available for 34 people. In other parts of the jail, a pod of eight may have only one or two working tablets. This can cause issues, as who can decide who gets to use the tablets when. Sheriff Barrett says that adding more tablets could crash the Wi-Fi signal, which is hindered by the jail's large concrete walls. We walked to the first pod of the Public Safety Building Jail. These pods are used for the general population and is where most jail residents spend the bulk of their time. In the public safety building, the pod is an open area with carpeting, with showers and bathrooms on one end, bunk beds on the other, and tables and TVs in the center. There are no visible cells or bars. This, Sheriff Barrett explains, is what a new jail would look like, less of a cage. There is a calming color scheme, which Barrett says has been shown to reduce anger and violence. As Sheriff Barrett is showing me the pod, a jail resident comes up to us and starts a conversation about the class he just came from and about my audio equipment. After chatting a minute, he leaves, and Barrett explains that this is exactly what the pods were meant to do. So this is the, inter the interactions that's needed, right? 97% to 99% of those that are incarcerated are coming back to our communities. How do we want them coming back? Pissed off, bitter, broken, or do we want them better? If we treat them with respect, they'll behave better and they'll come back to the community respect. We talk, we shake hands, they can come and go, they can play cards, they can watch TV, they're not locked in cages. And when we talk about jails being cages, what we have in the city county building are cages. With this, we made our way over to the city county building jail. This jail was constructed in 1953, and it shows its age. It's connected to the public safety building by an underground tunnel. As we make our way into the tunnel and over the threshold into the old jail, the air immediately changes. It feels heavier, dirtier, filled with cloying dust. Barrett says that both jail workers and residents themselves walk through this tunnel every day, depending on what services they are using and where those services are located. As we come through here, you're going to notice a change in the air quality. You're going to notice a change. Obviously, I should have brought my inhaler. Every time I walk into the CCP, I have to use my inhaler. Mm -hmm. Not only do I use my inhaler because I have asthma, mm -hmm. uh, but I exercise. I walk so this is, that's how the, the air quality is really here. But you'll notice the change in the wall color, the change in the mildew in your feet. So this is where everyone has to walk when someone goes from this building to here. Debbie okay. has to escort them all the way this way and all the way up. See the field? Tell by the concrete. Yeah, concrete.
If you've ever gone into the basement of, say, an old school or old office building, then you've experienced the mood of the old Dane County Jail. Everything on this side feels old. There's more metal. Metal doors, metal walls, metal railings. Feels like I've traveled back in time. There are no pods in the city county jail. Instead, there are eight cells in a small common area. A bathroom, a table, a landline phone. It's full of cold metal and concrete, and Sheriff Barrett says that there are security issues as well. being able to have a line of sight mm -hmm. right now if there was someone that far can you come this way yeah that far cell that's on the far right if yeah. there was someone hanging in there would we be able to see not that? right now not at all not at all we would have to hope that when we go in and check every hour that we see them or that the other residents yell for help mm -hmm. and that's what happened in this building a female was starting to make a contraption to hang herself the residents in the room started yelling for deputies deputies came down and stopped this is what we talk about a safety issue you can't see in from here as opposed to that pot right where the deputy could be at that station yeah. and see just about it yeah the jail in the city county building also has solitary confinement cells the cells are similar to the solitary cells on the other side but with one key difference the light are there is there more lights than just this is it. this is it that's it and what you see here is that when it's, uh, these lights have to be on 24-7 so we can see. Mm -hmm. They'll take toilet paper and try to block out the light so that they can sleep at mm -hmm. night. So again, this is not, the, not that big at all. They get a mattress that goes here. Sheriff Barrett says that building a new jail would be the first step towards helping to reduce recidivism and make people less hostile when they leave the jail. 66.2% of people incarcerated right now are people of color. And when we talk about criminal justice reform and we want to affect those who are affected the most by the disparities in our criminal justice system, it starts with the environment and it starts with the jail to which they're being housed in. We want to bring them back to our facility or to our community built up and better and not broken and bitter. A referendum to add the needed money to build a new jail was not on the agenda for last Thursday's county board meeting and is not currently on the agenda for any future meetings. The budget amendment to have the board itself approve the additional funding will be discussed at tomorrow night's Public Works and Transportation Committee. To get the referendum on the ballot for November, the board will need to approve the referendum by August. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. Jail consolidation, PFAS reports, and dark skies, oh my. On this week's Forward Lookout, Brenda Conkle spoke with producer Dylan Brogan to break down all the meetings happening around Madison and Dane County this week. All right, it's Monday. That means we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com about what's happening this week in local government. There are federal holiday, there's um, so at Juneteenth, so there is... No meetings today, but tomorrow, Dane County's uh, Public Protection and Judiciary Committee will be having a hybrid meeting uh, at 5.30. So what will they be talking about? Um, they have some sort of routine things, but then they will also be talking about um, if they had initial appearances on the weekends, how that would impact the mm -hmm. jail population. So they have a report on that that's from last October, I believe, that they'll be looking at and trying to decide what their recommendation would be about that. Friday afternoon is not a good time to get booked into the Dane County Jail. No, it is not. You may be there till Monday or Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, so they're going to be looking into a weekend court. So that's interesting. Yep. 
Yep. And at 530, uh, also uh, same time as PP&J, we have another hybrid meeting of the Public Works and Transportation Committee. And they have, again, some routine items, a couple of leases out at the airport. Um, and But then they'll also be authorizing another almost three quarters of a million dollars for meet and hunt for the jail design. Hmm. Again, but it does. It looks very unclear whether that's going to pass the the full board, though. So, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. We were just here. It wasn't in April. We were the same place, except uh, ten yep. million dollars lower or something, right? Yep. They do. Yeah. Seems like it's every six months another ten million dollars. <laughs> yeah, and I know that the sheriff and uh, and Dane County Executive Joe Prezi want this to go to referendum. Um, you know, I I think that I don't not sure. I usually I like referendums, but you know, this is a really tough choice that I'd put in voters, right? It is. I'm, I'm real curious how it'll turn out. Like usually, I kind of have some sort of a an inkling, but I, you know, it's hard to say. Yeah, because people want the city county building jail replaced, but they don't really want uh, to invest any money in a in a in a you know in jails. Period. Right. And, and the politics of it doesn't, um, you know, I, I, probably a lot of it will depend upon how uh, people get involved and what kind of campaign they have to yeah. to pass the referendum or, or to vote against the referendum. Hmm. All right. Something to keep an eye on. And um, let's talk about the Parks Commission, which is meeting at 530 on Wednesday. And th- this is just a regular in-person meeting. It is outside. It's at the Lake County Park Shelter in Mount Horeb. Yeah. They've been meeting at Parks. Uh, they're one of the few meetings that have been meeting in person yeah. for a little while now. Um, again, they have some routine items, uh, you know, tennis court restoration. Um, they're selling some property around along Highway 19. Um, they do have a, a proposed underpass at Indian Lake County Park. Huh. And then they're getting some presentations about friends of the Stewart Lake County Park while they're out there. Um, And then also a little bit more about the history. And then there's a free kids fishing event on July 23rd from 9 to noon. Is there any other county meetings that we should talk about uh, before moving on to the city? Um, I do think the 9 a.m. on Thursday, the broadband task force is meeting. Um, They are going to be voting on their recommendations. So that may be of interest to some folks. Um, And then we do have an unusual meeting, the Condemnation Committee. They haven't met since August 16th of 2021. Um, So they don't meet very often and they just review the cases that have been heard. Yeah, Um, who are they condemning? This is usually um, property that they are going to be using for county purposes of some sort. Welcome back, Condemnation Committee. Yeah, the other meeting that may be of interest is 5.30 on Thursday, um, Environment, Agriculture, and Natural Resources Committee is meeting. And I said might be interesting to folks because they are supposed to hear a report on PFAS sampling okay. at the Dane County Regional Airport. However, it says this item is to inform the committee that this topic will be on a future agenda um, as information and staff are available. So I'm not entirely sure if that's going to be of interest or not. And that's at 5.30, and it is a hybrid meeting on Thursday. Yes, yes it is. So moving on, the City of Madison at 11 a.m. tomorrow, the Homeless Services Consortium Board of Directors meet. Um, this is actually, um, I'm no longer the president of the PSRC, but now I'm the president of the Homeless Services Consortium Board of Directors. So okay. uh, I know a lot about this one. Um, we are getting a presentation from the youth. Um, there's a youth action board that is um, in control of Uh, a bunch of federal funds that we have gotten from the federal government. And um, there's been a lot of drama. And so they are going to be recommending that we um, 
change the way that funding is going to be distributed. It was going to go through Briar Patch, and I think they're asking for it to go a different direction. Um, so that's the biggest thing that'll be going on there. Kind of a, a little bit of an unusual, um, important terms of importance of a meeting. Uh, we don't talk about it too often. The building code, fire code, conveyance code, and licensing board meets at 1 p.m. on Tuesday. They're talking about um, this outdoor lighting and making Madison one of these cities, right, that uh, doesn't contribute to light pollution. Um, yeah, this is one of the first times I've seen it on any of the committee agendas. Um and yeah, usually they have very, very, very boring items on their agenda, you know, the stair exits and, and really minor things that uh, they look at to decide if they can waive them or not. But yeah, this time they'll be talking about outdoor lighting and they'll be um, looking at uh, repealing an entire section of the ordinances and, and replacing yeah. it so that we will be one of the few cities that are that are doing some better work in this area. And you all you have to do is take a look outside at night to know what light pollution does. You can't, you, hardly any stars. Yep. You know what I don't hear this committee talking about? The moon. Oh, they are not talking about the moon. You are correct. <laughs> you know how much light pollution comes off the moon? <laughs> uh, you'll have to take it up with NASA. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Whoever's in control of the moon nowadays. No, I don't think we can mess with the moon. Probably not. There's some... Intended consequences, yeah, I think, well, you is know, what the, happens. The tides, and we better not mess with that. But anyway... Um, <laughs> all right. Well, that was fun. Well, let's talk uh, lastly, uh, while I go on and on about the moon, uh, about the Madison City Council, which will be meeting at 630. And it looks like uh, alders have a lengthy agenda. They do. Um, they have a few projects over in the Oscar Mayer area, 702 Ruskin Street and 2007 Ross Street. So I know that that has been a concern to many people who live on the north side. Um, they're also going to be approving the, the mapping of the roads in that area. There's also some projects on Mary Street, Olin Avenue, and Monona Drive and Cottage Grove Road. Um, they are going to be looking at going to hybrid meetings themselves um, starting um, at their next meeting. They are doing 36 different uh, permanent streetery applications. Oh, so there's man. a long list of folks that are, are in line to get that their, their um, outdoor seating areas to be permanent. Um, and then there's uh, Art Bear on the Square is looking for their liquor license and couple of TIF districts. They're going to be extending for 12 months so they can use money for affordable housing. Um, they have the new artist in residence for Thurber Park, accepting gender inclusive language and adopting city plans. And finally, uh, designating the polling locations for the 2022 fall elections. Yes. And that actually is important because I know the clerk's office is worried about it. Due to how the state, you know, with the state redistricting um, and getting them all in line, they have to, you might have a different polling place than you did even in the April election. Yeah, yeah, it's been the poor clerk's office. It just yes. seems like it's one thing after another for them. But yeah, they're they're working hard at it and hopefully they've got it all figured out. Yep, and, and keep an eye out for a postcard from Mary Beth Witzelbale, the, the city clerk, right. to let you know yep. about it. Well, there's a lot more meetings and agendas happening um, this week, which you can check out at forwardlookout.com. We're just going over the highlights. So thank you, Brenda, for giving up some time on a holiday to talk about uh, local government. All right, and thanks to you too, Dylan. June 19th marks the 85th anniversary of the Women's Day Massacre in Youngstown, Ohio during the Little Steel Strike of 1937. Two strikers were killed by police fire and dozens, including women and children, were injured. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. 
Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong Yesterday, June 19th, marks the Women's Day Massacre of 1937 during the Little Steel Strike. The strike was launched on May 26th for union recognition by the Steelworkers Organizing Committee, SWOC, and the CIO, the rights of workers to organize independent unions, engage in meaningful collective bargaining, and to protest by striking and picketing were ostensibly protected by the Wagner Act passed two years before. The rights were upheld as constitutional a few weeks before the strike began by the Supreme Court decision NLRB v. Jones and Laughlin Steele. It also came after significant CIO sit-down strike victories most notably at Flint, Michigan. U.S. Steel, by far the nation's biggest steel operation, had agreed to recognize the SWOC voluntarily just months before. But Little Steel, Republic, Bethlehem, Youngston, Sheet and Tube, and Inland was pushed by a broad coalition of American capitalists to fight the CIO in a bid to check the advances of organized labor, nullify the Supreme Court's ruling, and roll back the New Deal. Another factor in their favor was an economic downturn that increased unemployment and competition for jobs. The strike spread across seven states and involved over 30 mills. At its height, 80,000 workers were out, plus at least 10,000 CIO miners and other sympathy strikers. Women played a key role in the strike. Few married women of that period had jobs outside the home. Women walked the picket line, bled marshes, and risked life and limb to press the Union's cause. Three days before the Memorial Day Massacre, for instance, a woman was one of three people killed leading a march of between 700 and 1,000 people to a Republic Steel plant in Chicago. On the day of the massacre, 10 to 15 percent of the marchers were women. Two of them, Tilly Brazil, and Catherine Nelson were shot in the legs by company agents. The next month, at Republic's Stop 5 gate in Youngston, Ohio, on Women's Day, on the picket line, some 15 women were demonstrating when a belligerent police captain reproached them. Moments later, when they refused to leave, he ordered tear gas fired on the women and their children. An infant being carried by one of the women was injured during the assault. Outraged union workers rushed to the scene. They attacked an isolated policeman, and other police started shooting into the crowd. The workers, by this time at Republic Steel's main gate, regrouped, and the confrontation morphed into an all-out battle. Confrontations continued throughout the night, with SWOC leaders trying to protect workers and restore order. They were trying to separate the warring groups when one supporter, John Bogovich, died after being shot in the neck. When word got out in the community, the fighting intensified. Union supporters returned fire on the police, a scene described by a union organizer as the Great War starting over again. By dawn, the Ohio's New Deal governor had called in 5,000 National Guard troops to protect Youngstown. SWOC organizer John Steuben was forced to negotiate a peaceful withdrawal of police forces as Union supporters gathered to assess the night's tragedy. In the end, Republic fired many of the Union's leaders, and steel workers were forced to continue their fight another day. The U.S. Senate's La Follette Civil Liberties Commission investigated the overall Little Steel strike, finding that over the course of the strike, 16 people had been killed and 283 people were injured. Some of those were shot in the back while running away from the police. The commission found that the police forces were internally hired by Republic Steel and were supplied by Republic with weapons including machine guns 
and over 160,000 rounds of ammunition for the Youngstown District. The United Steelworkers, USW, gained recognition in the Little Steel Plants in 1942, one year after the nation's entry into World War II. The War Board handed the USW dues checkoff, guaranteeing the Union's continuous flow of dues. Unlike the UAW, the USW was imposed from above with serious consequences for the steelworkers in their communities. As late as the mid-50s, half of all steelworkers still lived below the poverty line. But those are stories for another day. For the past is the past, I'm Harry Richardson. It's now 6.47 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. It's Pride Month, and as LGBTQ plus folks around the country see it as a chance to celebrate who they are, large corporations also use the moment to show their support. But is that corporate support always genuine? This week on Bridging the Gap, feature contributor Teresa Yang explains the term rainbow washing and why it can be harmful to the LGBTQ plus community. June is Pride Month, dedicated to celebrating LGBTQ plus pride. During this month, many businesses will push out pride-related products or promotions as an effort to show their support for the LGBTQ plus community. However, it seems that the support for the LGBTQ plus community only happens during the month of June. Many people have discovered that some corporations, while seemingly celebrating Pride Month by releasing rainbow-colored products or sales promotions, are actually donating to organizations that are anti-gay. This action caused consumers to question whether these corporations are rainbow-washing, pretending to be an ally on the outside, and do nothing in reality to support the community. This is Bridging the Gap, a weekly feature dedicated to exploring the connection and differences between generations. According to The Skims, rainbow washing is when a business publicly shows support for the LGBTQ community, such as hanging up a rainbow flag or pushing out pride-related products, but privately engages in practices that are detrimental to those who identify as LGBTQ+. Essentially, rainbow washing is a form of performative activism for corporations to easily reap profits without actually making real changes. In 2019, Popular Information researched several corporations on whether they were LGBTQ+. Friendly. What they found was that many companies who seemed to be publicly supporting LGBTQ rights were privately donating to anti-gay politicians and organizations. Some well-known ones include AT&T, Walmart, and Comcast. AT&T is a well-known supporter of the LGBTQ community, hosting events and fundraisers during Pride Month to show their support. However, 
AT&T had also donated $22,000 to Marsha Blackburn, a well-known anti-gay senator who voted against a bill that would protect against LGBTQ related hate crimes. Walmart is known for releasing a selection of rainbow-themed clothing during Pride Month, but has been consistently donating to lawmakers who support the banning of gender-affirming surgeries for trans youth since 2019. Comcast has similarly made bold statements on its commitment to educating people about LGBTQ rights, but simultaneously donates to politicians who support the ban on trans youth participating in sports. This form of rainbow washing is concerning in many ways. First, it is a form of performative activism, meaning that the act of support is merely for show. Performative activism can often damage a movement because of people's lack of effort to actually make a difference. Second, rainbow washing also tends to ignore the history behind a movement for its own profit. Many corporations come out with different Pride Month products, but how many actually put in the effort to put forth a message that is actually inclusive? Lastly, rainbow washing is seen often more as a marketing tactic for these corporations to make more money and not actually support the community. Angela Watercutter, the senior associate editor of The Wired, says in an article, quote, If you're selling Pride gear and is giving your profits to an organization like The Trevor Project, and or making sure your company is hiring or supporting LGBTQ community, that's a good faith effort. If it's just about changing your logo on Twitter or hanging a flag in your store so queer people will spend their queer dollars there, well, in the immortal words of Shania Twain, that don't impress me much, end quote. Nevertheless, this isn't to say that all businesses should stop associating themselves with Pride Month. The LGBTQ community has come a long way in their fight for equality, and it's definitely a huge step forward from our previous Don't Ask, Don't Tell era. The fact that rainbow washing is even an issue shows us that our society is becoming more aware of how we need to take the next steps in fighting for equality. The bottom line is, supporting the LGBTQ community shouldn't be a form of marketing strategy or a way to virtue signal. It should be proving your support through actions that show your dedication to the cause. For Bridging the Gap and WORT News, I'm Teresa Yan. For this week's Monday Movie Review, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies on the small screen. Who We Are, A Chronicle of Racism in America is a moving documentary, and The Hall, Honoring the Greats of Stand-Up, is a primer on four groundbreaking great comedians. Virginia passed a law, an enslaved person's death while resisting a master is not a felony. Would you look at those words, please, and think about the videos you have seen in the past 10 years? Got fired! It's still not a felony. That was clip from the trailer for a moving documentary, Who We Are, A Chronicle of Racism in America, directed by Emily and Sarah Kunstler, daughters of 60s activist lawyer William Kunstler. It's a talk by attorney Jeffrey Robinson, former ACLU deputy legal director, in 2018 at New York's Town Hall Theater. Robinson, an African-American who grew up in segregated Memphis, Tennessee, traces the nation's dark history of systemic racism from 1619, that reportedly first shipment of enslaved people to today. Early in his talk, he notes although he was educated at prestigious schools, he didn't learn much about the history of enslaved people or the many tragedies that occurred to maintain white supremacy. He begins his talk asking if anyone here owns a slave, please raise your hand. When no one does, 
he makes his very non-rhetorical point. Slavery is not our fault. We didn't do it. We didn't cause it. It's not our responsibility. But he adds, it is our shared history. And when we turn that shared history into something it is not, when we try to make more light of it than it was, then we are denying who we really are. To illustrate his point, Robinson intersperses footage of interviews he has done. One particularly telling exchange occurs with a man who is part of a group holding several Confederate flags at a Confederate statue. Robinson politely asks him what the Civil War was about, and the man talks about heavy taxation of the South by the North. Robinson points out how that wealth was created by enslaved people. The man counters that slaves were treated like family. Robinson replies, so if I enslaved you, but I treated you like family, that would be okay. The man mutters a reply, and Robinson thanks him for his time and shakes hands with him. Of course, no enslaved people were treated like family, but we see the broader point as well about this man's miseducation on slavery. This is especially telling at a time of right-wing attack on critical race theory and numerous state legislatures restricting what can be taught in schools. Another important interview was with a Charleston, South Carolina, Old Slave Mart Museum staffer where they discuss an exhibit of manacles used on enslaved people, one that was for a man. The other was for a child of five or six. Robinson touches on the vital history of the economic role of slavery with a trip to New York. He speaks to a historian about the commerce of slavery and how New York banks profited. Robinson also tells moving stories about his family, like the time his parents were finally able to buy a house in a white neighborhood with a good school nearby through getting some white friends to buy it and then sell it to them. Central to his talk are several tipping points, like the end of the Civil War, and Reconstruction, and the 60s Civil Rights Movement, where vast progress was made, only to be reversed by white supremacists. The 60s tipping point ended tragically with the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Robinson considers the Black Lives Matter movement another tipping point. He urges us all to work to see that our nation moves forward this time. A well-done documentary. I highly recommend it. It's now showing on Netflix. Up next, something a little lighter, a comedy show. Have a little respect for a brilliant artist who was just more talented than you. <laughs> that's, that's what was happening. Making people laugh is incredibly fun. The art form of comedy is a joy to perform. That was a clip from the trailer for a show honoring four groundbreaking comedians. The Hall, honoring the greats of stand-up. The Hall apparently refers to the National Comedy Center. It contains mementos from comedians throughout the nation's history. It has an all-star comedy crew as its advisory board. They have the archives of George Carlin one of the show's honorees. The show starts with an amusing intro by SNL's Peter Davidson. John Stewart inducted Carlin. John Mullaney inducted Robin Williams. Chelsea Handler inducted Joan Rivers. And the controversial David Chappelle inducted Richard Pryor. Unfortunately, the four montages of the honorees, the show's best part, only take up 26 of the show's 70 minutes. This special is a pretty good primer, but people may want to check out other streaming programs. HBO has a two-part special, George Carlin's American Dream, plus his 14 HBO specials. HBO Max has a recent doc on Williams, plus one of the two series based on Joan Rivers, Hacks. 
Amazon Prime has the other, The Marvelous Ms. Maisel, and several Carlin specials. Netflix also has a special from Rivers and Pryor on now. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporters tonight were Reed Kamai and Madeline Plattenberg. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Teresa Yen, Brenda Conkle, and Dylan Brogan. Victor Calzoni engineered this show, Nate Weggehout produced this newscast, and Shelly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.